Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. This week we're going to cover a disaster that briefly touches on my two biggest obsessions, disasters and college football. No, this isn't about a football game, you don't have to worry. I'll talk about college football in a different podcast to save you all. No, this is more tangentially connected to college football. This episode is about the 1999 Texas A&M bonfire collapse. So first we're going to start with Texas A&M. For those that you don't know, Texas A&M is a university in College Station, Texas. College Station is located basically exactly in the center between Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, and Austin in eastern Texas. It's almost directly dead center of all of those major cities. The college was originally founded in 1871 as the Agricultural and Mechanical College of Texas, or better known as Texas AMC. Originally created as a land-grant university, it was the first public university in the state of Texas, which they like to remind everyone of at every possible moment they can. At the very beginning, admission was limited to only white males who were required to be a part of the Corps of Cadets and receive specific military training. The first day of classes was technically October 2nd, 1876. I say technically because only six students actually showed up that day. So they delayed it two days and officially started classes on October 4th, 1876 with a more respectable 40 students. The first years of instruction at A&M were limited to military training, classical studies, applied mathematics, languages, and literature, which you'll note is not even remotely related to agricultural or mechanical teaching, which is what the school was named. Eventually, local protests from farting groups ousted the president and literally the entire faculty so that they would actually teach, you know, agriculture and mechanical engineering. At first, students of the school were nicknamed farmers for obvious reasons, because, you know, agriculture. Uh, but this quickly gave way to the more common nickname of Aggies. So, if you watch college sports now, Texas A&M teams are all nicknamed the Aggies. So they're Texas A&M Aggies. Not long after that, the student body swelled to nearly 500 students. But then, in 1883, the nearby University of Texas in Austin opened and dropped enrollment at Texas AMC considerably. This would not be the first time that Texas A&M and the University of Texas would cross horns. <laughs> By 1910, they offered eight degree programs, several engineering programs, and agriculture. There was actually a push for a while to actually close Texas AMC because they didn't think it could compete with the University of Texas, but they eventually won out and the school continued to grow. Interestingly enough, Texas A&M has one of the strongest military histories in the United States. To this day, Texas A&M still has the largest production of commissioned officers in the U.S. military, more than any college in the United States. Yes, that includes the Air Force Academy and the Naval Academy and West Point literally have more commissioned officers than the places that are supposed to train military officers. Over 14,000 Aggies served as officers in World War II more than both the Naval Academy and West Point combined. So Texas A&M has a very proud tradition of producing commissioned officers in the United States military. In 1963, the school changed its name from Agricultural and Mechanical College of Texas to simply Texas A&M. 
Now, you would think that A&M would stand for agricultural and mechanical, but it does not. It's literally just A&M. Also in 1963, A&M opened their doors to allow women and people of color into the school, and after that, enrollment absolutely exploded. Now, with the heavy military influence at Texas A&M, there shouldn't be much shock that Aggies are obsessed with tradition. Military is often obsessed with tradition, and things do not change quickly in the military, simply because that's how it's always been done, and A&M is much the same. Their school website literally has an entire page dedicated to Texas A&M traditions. And that's basically what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about one tradition from Texas A&M in particular, bonfire. Now, in this episode, I will alternate between calling it the bonfire and bonfire. Most people at Texas A&M just refer to it as bonfire without the the, but Occasionally, it sounds weird in the sentence, so I'll just throw the the in there to make it flow a little bit better. But just know that it's generally just called bonfire at Texas A&M, and I'm not just pulling that out of nowhere and speaking incorrectly. It is very often just called bonfire. And bonfire is exactly what you think it is. It is students building a giant tower out of wood, and then they light it on fire. It is traditionally built in the weekend before what would have been the football game against the University of Texas, and it is said that if the bonfire doesn't collapse before midnight before the game, then Texas A&M will beat Texas in that football game. So I need to explain something really quick. Texas A&M and University of Texas were founded just about six or seven years apart, and they very quickly became major rivals in not just academics, but sports as well. The Texas A&M and Texas football game was a huge deal in Texas when that game was still being played because it was generally played right around the weekend of Thanksgiving and it was a massive deal in Texas. And so Texas A&M started the bonfire tradition before that game to basically symbolize their burning desire to beat Texas. Now, one of the big things that will continue to come up in this episode is that Texas is generally abbreviated as UT, for short for University of Texas. Now, in order to irritate Texas fans, Texas A&M fans will refer to them as TU. If you ask Texas fans, it does not bother them. But the truth is, TU extraordinarily bothers them, and I'm sure I will get some angry emails about how we don't care if you call us TU, you're just an upset Aggie, Blah, blah, blah. I'm not an Aggie, first of all. I am a Hoosier, so I have really no fight in this. I just really like annoying Texas fans. Anyway, that's besides the point. The real point is that Texas and Texas A&M are rivals, and this entire bonfire is based around Texas A&M's burning desire to beat Texas at football. And if you are one of those Texas fans that emails me to say that you're up, not upset about being called TU, I'm just going to reply with the horns down. That's it. Anyway, moving on we need to get into why bonfires started. So the first bonfire spanned all the way back until either 1907 or 1909, depending on who you want to listen to. Technically, the first Aggie bonfire was November 18, 1907. I say technically because it wasn't actually held on campus. It was a bonfire that was burned in celebration off campus near the ra- the train station after A&M successfully de- defeated Tulane in an 18-6 slogfest that sent three players to the hospital with injuries. 
It was literally just a pile of trash by the local train station in College Station that was set on fire by some celebratory corps of cadets. It wasn't on campus, which is why it's sometimes not considered the first official bonfire. Fun fact, while I was doing the research for this episode, I actually found a relative of mine played in that game for Texas A&M, not one of the ones that was injured, and he didn't really participate. He had a couple yards carrying, but that's besides the point. So that was the first bonfire, but not the first official bonfire. The first on-campus bonfire was two years later in November of 1909. Again, they burned a random pile of trash just as a kind of rah-rah go sports teams in general. And that's how it was every year until 1919. That's when TU and A&M began to regularly meet for a football game over the weekend of Thanksgiving. The bonfire would be built in the week leading up to the game, then burnt on the eve of the game after Midnight Yell. Midnight Yell is another Aggie tradition that basically they go out and practice yelling things that they've been doing since they first started as a school. It's Basically a pep rally, for lack of a better term. And as I said before, legend has it that if the bonfire didn't collapse before midnight, then A&M was sure to beat the Longhorns. That's Texas's mascot. They are the Longhorns. Hence the crossing horns joke earlier. Early on, bonfires were built entirely by freshmen. Basically, bonfire was used as a way for freshmen to prove that they were worthy of being at A&M. These earlier bonfires were little more than random piles of wood, trash, and debris that they could scrounge up, often through less than legal means. What I mean by less than legal means is, according to legend, in 1935, students were struggling to find enough wood for bonfire, so they decided to acquire some from a new source. They stole a barn. That's not a joke. Students disassembled a local farmer's barn and used it as fuel for the bonfire. The farmer very obviously complained about his now-missing barn, and the Corps of Cadets had to raise money to replace the barn. The very next year, to prevent their students from stealing someone else's barn, they made it a school-sanctioned event and showed the freshmen to the dead crop of trees near campus they could cut down and use to build the bonfire. For the next several years, it would continue to be a random assortment of whatever garbage A&M fans could find, until 1943 when it was finally an all-log bonfire, with some sort of construction pattern. Which makes sense, because the bonfire appeared in the 1943 propaganda film, We've Never Been Licked. You can't just have a random pile of trash being burnt in a World War II propaganda movie, especially one that's being used to describe how wonderful all of the commissioned officers coming out of Texas A&M are. That wouldn't look good on screen. So they made sure it was all logs, and it looked good. Now, just real quick... The movie is terrible. It's horribly racist, several actors appear in yellowface, the plot makes no sense, and the bonfire only appears at one point because a professor tells the protagonist he has a chemical weapon that will help change the course of the war for seemingly no reason, and then the protagonist tells the professor to make a dummy recipe and a real recipe, and then a whole bunch of other stupid happens and some... Japanese characters that were really nice to the protagonist um, steal the dummy recipe, and the people who were at A&M who were really mean to the protagonist, you know, save them. It's weird. It's a whole, it's, it's a World War II propaganda movie, so that goes without saying. And then a whole bunch of stupid happens, and that is the last time the bonfire appears in the movie. Literally just that brief moment to further the plot. 
It's only worth mentioning because it's a weird bit of history surrounding the event. Two years later, they changed up the design from a random pile to an actual planned thing. They installed a center pole and made the pile in a campfire shape. And then, just to top it off, they painted an outhouse burnt orange and placed it on top of the pile. If you couldn't figure it out, burnt orange is the school color of Texas, and they also called it the Texas Tea Room. Literally, they would use an outhouse and call it the Texas Tea Room because college students are extremely predictable with their jokes. And what I mean by campfire was they put a pole in the middle and they just leaned the logs up against it in like a triangle shape. From there, the height of the bonfire took off. Always bigger, always better. The first collapse happened in 1957, just two days before the game, and was rapidly rebuilt by students. By 1969, the bonfire reached a record height of 109 feet tall. In 1970, totally randomly and out of the blue, the school limited the height to 55 feet tall and 45 feet wide. There's no real documentation as to why, but I'm guessing it has something to do with the fact the previous year's 109-foot monstrosity was highly unstable and the school didn't want a terrible accident. And then, in 1978, students changed the design from the campfire to basically a wedding cake, so it was built in tiers Kind of like wedding cake, you know, how you have a really wide lower tier and then a slightly smaller second tier and then a slightly smaller third tier and a slightly smaller fourth tier. That's how they did it. The tradition continued on. The tradition continued on virtually unimpeded until 1994. Just a few days before Bonfire was scheduled to be burnt, it rained heavily in and around College Station. This caused the whole thing to sink and collapse, meaning it was hastily rebuilt just before the scheduled burning but they did manage it. That is only the second time that Bonfire had collapsed over the years since it had started to be built in 1909. Over the years, the event swelled in attendance to the point where 30,000 to 70,000 people would attend the event. Yes, you heard that right. 70,000 people would attend to watch a bunch of logs burn. Football in Texas is otherworldly. There are some sporting events that don't even get close to 70,000 people. 70,000 people were attending an event in the middle of the night to watch a pile of logs get burnt and hope that it didn't fall before midnight so that they would beat their rival from down the road. Football in America, football in Texas, is a religion, basically. And it is crazy. Anyway... That brings us to the fall of 1999. The game against Texas was going to be a huge matchup. A&M was 7-3 and ranked number 24 in the nation. Texas was 9-2 and was ranked number 5 in the nation. The game was at Kyle Field, Texas A&M Stadium, and could not have been more perfect setup for a late-season showdown between two heavyweight teams. If you're not well-versed in college football, this was massive. This is Rocky versus Apollo Creed. Like, this is Manchester United versus Manchester City. Um, I'm trying to think of good ways to compare this. This is Anakin Skywalker versus Obi-Wan Kenobi in Episode 3. Like, this is Aragorn and Boromir crossing swords and fighting. Like, this is a massive matchup with massive implications, and 
there is going to be a ton of hatred on either side, no matter how it plays out. Because if Texas wins, then they continue on and they're in the fight for a national championship. If Texas A&M wins, then they've just ruined Texas' season and they get to lord it over them for literally ever. Like, Bonfire had its ups and downs with attendance, but a game like this with two teams that were so highly ranked and so highly thought of, especially with Texas being number five coming into Kyle Field, there was going to be a huge turnout for this bonfire because it was such a big game and people desperately wanted to beat Texas. So, this bonfire needed to be wonderful. The game was scheduled to be played on November 25th, 1999, so logs were starting to be cut down on October 3rd of 1999. Now, all of the logs are cut and stacked by hand, by students, and then, like, they're cut and stacked in place, and then loaded onto trucks by students by hand. Now, back in the 60s, participation in the Corps of Cadets had become voluntary, which meant that students that were not under the direct supervision of the Corps of Cadets began to work on the bonfire. So, in order to keep it kind of, instead of one big glob of random students coming up to help build this bonfire, which would have been a terrible idea, they came up with a new system of volunteer direction in order to build it in a semi-regulated way. These new supervisors were nicknamed the Red Pots because of the red helmets they wore. They consisted of nine seniors and nine juniors, with one senior in overall command. They were often involved in previous builds of bonfire because, otherwise, well, there'd be no idea to actually build the thing. That's because there were no written instructions for bonfire. So, it wasn't a thing of, oh, we have this design that we've written down and you follow these blueprints. They have seniors working together with juniors, sophomores, and freshmen who have previously worked on it, who learned from the seniors above them on how to build it. No one ever actually wrote wrote down how to build Bonfire. It was always different because, well, we know how telephone works. It never works well. I guess it's not technically correct to say that there was no written documentation of how to build Bonfire. Technically, there was a design on the back of the t-shirts that the volunteers wore, but um, if you want to call that a design on how to build it, then you go ahead and be my guest. So I want to make sure to set this scene properly for you guys. This is a massive event in which college students are gathering together under the lack of supervision of anyone that is an adult or any engineers or anything like that who are designing and building a bonfire that is 55 feet tall and 45 feet wide made out of solid logs. These aren't like planks or anything like this. These are fully cut down trees with the limbs chopped off and then put into place. All of this is being done by college students. Now, I don't know much about college students in other countries. But I know a lot about college students in the United States because I was one and um, I made some pretty dumb decisions. So I can't imagine that uh, this was not frequently built without the aid of um, less than legal substances, alcohol, drugs, you name it. So... They are doing all of this across October and November. They are cutting down these trees. 
They are loading them into trucks. They are bringing them to the site. And then they are stacking them by hand all the way up to 55 feet tall without any diagram, guidance, or instructions besides what the people who have built one previously can remember from when they built it previously and who taught them before. And then they're going to douse it in 700 gallons of diesel fuel and light it on fire. So now with all that being said, let's try and explain how this was actually built. Because despite the fact that there were no written instructions, there was still some regularity to how the bonfire was actually built so that it maintained a kind of um, aura of legitimacy, I guess is the word I'm looking for. There was a, a way to continue to build it so that it would still work year after year after year because you try, something fails, then you try that a different way. If that works, then you continue on doing that. So there was a way this was built that had been passed down that kind of stayed the same. So, as I said earlier, it's like a wedding cake. There are six total tiers to bonfire. But we're going to start in the center. So in the center, the very dead center of the pile, is a center pole that everything is rigged around. That center pole consists of two power poles spliced together and buried 14 feet in the ground. The center pole in 1999 was 105 feet long. And what I mean by spliced together is basically they take a portion of it and they cut half of it off long ways. So say you take, you measure down 20 feet and you cut down halfway through the pole and then you slice that portion off. So you still have half of the long length of the pole. You do that on the other pole and then they glued them together. They line the poles up, the two halves they've spliced up. They use five gallons of wood glue, eight bolts, four steel plates, a three-eighths inch thick steel cable, and steel staples to secure the two halves of the power poles together. And then they buried it 14 feet in the ground so that it had a good stable bit. So above the ground, there's 91 feet sticking up above the ground. At the top of the center pole is a cap that has four guy wires strung to four freestanding poles. Now those four poles provide two functions. Number one, they're held there to help with stability. So those guy wires are taut and they are helping keep the center pole center in position up and down. The other thing they're doing is providing lights because frequently once you got to the end of building bonfire, they would work in round-the-clock round the shifts. So it was 24 hours, someone was constantly stacking logs on this pile. After that, the ground is compacted and made sure it's pressed down so it's relatively even and the dirt is extremely compact, so there's no shifting of the earth underneath it. And then, the logs are then stacked in a spiral from the center pole. So there's a certain part where you go about eight feet out from the center pole and they buried some logs in the ground to help with stability. And then they would start to strap logs to the center pole in a circle fashion all the way around. It was in a giant spiral around in a circle around the center pole. They would lash a log to the center pole, then they put a log next to that, and then they would intertwine cables through the center pole around the center pole, around the log that had already been attached, and then around the log that was being attached, and then they'd move on to the next, and they would do a figure eight around the center pole, and the previous log, and the current log, and so on and so forth, all the way around in a giant spiral until they were done with that tier, 
and then they moved up to the next tier and started again. So once they finished a layer, say the first layer, they'd go around all the way around lashing logs into place until it was a 45 foot diameter circle basically. They would then wrap that layer in a giant thick steel wire to help hold it into place, kind of like a barrel. So if you think about a barrel, it's got all the, the wooden timbers on the outside and you have a ring around the top and the bottom. If you take the ring off, it all falls outward. Now, if you think about the same thing with this, you take a giant cable and you wrap it around, make sure it all stays into place. If you undo that cable, it all falls outward. And again, I need to remind you that all of this is being done by hand. There are occasionally cranes nearby, but the cranes generally weren't used until they got up to the you know fourth, fifth, or sixth layers because those are you know 55 feet in the air. It's really hard to carry giant logs 55 feet in the air by hand, but these first couple layers are being done by hand by 18 and 19 year olds round the clock. So this is a wild event, I guess is the best way to put that. And if this sounds like something that would be done by people who absolutely think they're invincible, well, again, they're 18 and 19 year old college students. Everyone thought they were invincible back then. I know I did. And I know you're thinking that it is an absolute miracle that no one has died before this, considering what this is. I just need you to understand that this is powered by the energy and stupidity of young people. Now, there was an incident back in, I believe, the 50s where a student died during the building of Bonfire, but it wasn't actually during the building. He was hit by a car while driving back from picking up logs. So it wasn't actually in the building. It was kind of a side accident, completely separate from building the actual bonfire. So they started cut on October 3rd, 1999, and the center pole arrived and was put into place October 30th, 1999. And after that, the logs started to be put into place. Many of the logs are stacked by hand, and as they got higher up into the higher levels, they started to use cranes. Now, construction was going fairly well through the beginning of November, up until around the 15th or 16th of November, when a crane accidentally struck the stack and knocked, knocked a log or two loose, but it didn't really affect anything. They just put those logs back into place and kept on trucking. Everything was going fairly swimmingly. So that brings us to 2.40 a.m., Thursday, November 18th, 1999. The workers on Bonfire were getting the fourth tier into place and preparing for the fifth tier. There were about 58 people on the stack at the time, and everything was going according to plan. They, everything was going according to plan. Everyone was doing well. The bonfire was being built well. It looked like it was going to be a good game. They were all excited for the upcoming game. They were all excited to burn bonfire. It was a great time. Everyone was working really hard and enjoying themselves. And then it all came crashing down. Literally. At 2.42 a.m., a loud crack was heard. Then a roar then a whole lot of cracking and roaring, and the whole thing came down in just seconds. A brief moment of silence, and then came the screaming. It only took three minutes for the first 911 call to be placed, letting emergency services know that the worst had happened at Bonfire. Brittany Allison was dangling on a plank 
from ropes trying to wire the last several logs on the second tier as they came in. So two things real quick. One, sometimes they added extra logs to lower tiers as they built up to help provide some stability for the upper tiers in case they felt like they didn't build it out enough. And the second thing is, is the center pole had like a bar of certain kind with carabiners attached at the top so they could attach ropes where they could then make essentially swings that hang down around the side of bonfire so if students could sit on the swings and move around the exterior of bonfire and help wire logs into place as they were put into place. So she's literally sitting on a swing on the exterior of this bonfire on a swing that is attached to the center pole as this starts to happen. So she's sitting on this swing and she saw something concerning. Seeing logs move was a regular sight while building bonfire. Seeing logs move that had already been lashed into place was not and that's precisely what she saw directly in front of her. So she's got her feet up against the logs, and the second tier logs where she was started to move, the ones that had already been lashed into place. And that's never, ever a good sign. Her first thought was to look up, and there she saw the next tier of logs start to bulge outwards, and she instantly knew that her position, dangling from this giant pile of logs from essentially a swing that she was attached to, was a bad place to be. But she also realized that if she'd jump, she'd immediately land directly in front of the falling logs at that moment. So she made the decision to ride it out, 20 feet in the air, on a glorified swing, as several thousand tons of solid wood collapsed around her. Brittany was hit by a log in the face, but landed on top of the pile and was able to escape with minor injuries. Lucas Gregory was working on a swing as well. He also saw the stack move and decided to grab onto the two logs in front of him and ride it out to whatever the end would be. Now I need you to imagine that. You are on a swing, on a giant pile of logs, and the ones that should be staying in place, these gigantic logs, these gigantic trees that should be lashed into place and not at all moving, suddenly start moving, and your first thought is, well, I'm going to grab him and ride it out, because that's what he did, and luckily, the logs he grabbed ended up on top of the pile, Unluckily, one of the guy wires that was attached to the top there for stability on the, two, the four light poles on the outside had trapped him in place so he couldn't move because it snapped and then pinned him into place. Eventually, he would be cut loose and freed by rescuers with minor injuries. Erica Alcala was standing on the ground. The stack began to collapse right to where she was standing. Like, she's standing directly in front of the pile, and it is falling at her on the ground. As she's realizing what's happening, she hears someone scream at her to run from up on the pile. And she did. She ran for her life and just managed to escape before the whole thing came down. The person who yelled at her to run, Michael Ebanks, would not be so fortunate and died in the collapse. Now, there's one story from this disaster that is probably the most harrowing experience of all and possibly one of the most harrowing experiences we've had in the history of disastrous history. That story 
is the experience of John Comstock. Now, John Comstock wasn't even supposed to be working on Bonfire that night. It was about 12.30 a.m. when some of his friends found him studying in his dorm room and convinced him he had to help, that he hadn't missed building Bonfire yet and shouldn't start now. John wanted to stay and study for the tests he had the next day, but his friends convinced him to go anyway because, again, college students not exactly the brightest of the bunch. So about 2.38 a.m., John was up on the fourth stack about 40 or so feet in the air. One of his friends said they were going down to get a snack, and John replied he was going to place a couple more logs, then head down to join him. Just four minutes later, the entire pile collapsed. Everything for John went black. The only thing he remembers is a loud snap and then falling. When he came to, his eyes were full of dirt, and his legs and left arm were pinned by logs. He could not move them at all. He also couldn't move any of his body, except for his right arm. He immediately stuck his right arm in the air, and someone near gra nearby grabbed it to let him know he wasn't alone. He was told that the EMTs knew where he was, but he had to go help other people, but they would be back to get him. And they would be back to get him seven hours later. Now, it's not that they left him completely alone for seven hours. It's that they couldn't get him out for seven hours. He laid there underneath the pile, pinned with only one arm able to move for seven straight hours. He landed in such a place that if they moved the logs he was stuck under, it could shift logs on other people, potentially killing them. So John was made to wait. And wait. And wait. You see, collapses, in general, are kind of like a giant game of pickup sticks. And this one in particular was literally a giant game of pickup sticks. Well, a game of pickup sticks for giants. If they moved one log, it could cause other logs to shift, crushing people who could be trapped alive underneath the pile. So in order to keep John awake, a firefighter sat nearby, and every 20 minutes or so would ask him to give a thumbs up to let him know he was still awake, and, well, not kicking, but at least alive. Eventually, John got to the point where he was ready to give up. It had been many hours, and asked the firefighter how much longer it would take before they would get him, and the firefighter would reply just a little bit longer. Eventually, John told the firefighter that he'd said just a little bit longer about a thousand times now, and he just needed to know so he could do that much time. So if it was going to be an hour, he'd do an hour. If he needed two hours, it was, he could do two hours. But he needed him to stop saying just a little bit longer, because I'm going to be honest with you, if I was laying pinned with only one arm free, I would also get really tired of hearing just a little bit longer. So the firefighter told him, he thought it'd be just about another hour. And John said, all right, I'll do another hour. But this was incredibly bleak for John. He had been pinned for, again, seven hours, not able to move anything but his right arm. And that is never a good thing for a track victim. You tend to start to get crush syndrome about four to six hours in, and he'd been laying there completely immobile for seven hours. So, there was a decent chance, even if they did get these logs off of him, that he was not going to make it. It was so incredibly bleak for John that Texas A&M was convinced that he was going to die. They wrote up a 13th press release announcing John's death. But John Comstock lived. He would lose a portion of his left leg, 
and the majority of the use of his right hand and would be using a wheelchair for all of his life, but he survived. He was the last person pulled out of the pile alive. In that press release that Texas A&M had written up announcing his death, John had it framed and hung up in his house. Again, the response for this disaster was delicate. Most collapses with trapped victims are. You have to be careful that removing one piece doesn't send the rest of it tumbling down on top of other trapped victims. Again, literally a giant game of pickup sticks, except with massive full-size logs. So for the first portion of the rescue, literally every log was removed extraordinarily carefully by hand by the local fire department, police department, and the Corps of Cadets, and even the Texas A&M football team. The Texas A&M football team did arrive on scene to help extricate victims and move Bonfire away and get rid of the logs after everyone had been removed. In the end, 12 people died during the collapse of the structure. 27 individuals would be injured. So, what caused the collapse? Was it rain like in 94 or something else? Because it's not like Bonfire had collapsed often. It had happened twice in the 90-year history, which is a pretty good run for an entirely student-led event with only tacit approval from the administration. And it turns out it was a bunch of things altogether. It wasn't rain. Firstly, you remember me talking about the first layer needing something to keep the logs from falling outward from the outward stress? So that outward stress has a name. It's called hoop stress. It requires something keeping everything in place because when all the pressure is pushing down, it's pushing it down and it's also pushing it out. Unfortunately, the first two layers of the stack in 99 had absolutely no cables around the outside at all. Like, they had them there, they were sitting to the side, but they didn't strap them in. The only thing that provided support was the logs being strapped to each other, and that was not nearly enough, especially considering point two, which is wedging. So, as they got higher up on the stack, students would start to wedge logs into the lower levels. So, if you're on the second level, you're going to wedge logs in between gaps in the first level, and so on and so forth. So if you're on the fifth level, you're wedging logs in the fourth level to, to fill gaps in lower levels. So if you think about it, trees obviously don't go perfectly straight. Sometimes they're at an angle. Sometimes you can't quite get them to fit together snugly. So if you're building them straight up and down like they are in Bonfire, because these logs are completely vertical, eventually you're going to have gaps, and you're going to want to put a log in those gaps. So what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to shove that log down into the level below it until it meets resistance and wedge it into place to provide support for it moving up, and then you can provide support and lash it to either side. Now what this does is it increases the pressure on the outside of the layer below it. So if you're wedging logs into the first layer from the second layer, you're increasing the pressure that's pushing the logs out away from the main stack. So the best way I can think of to describe this is if you have a barrel and you put another barrel on top of it and you take the ring off of the bottom barrel, that top barrel is going to add extra stress pushing those boards in an outward direction. This is only happens in cylindrical things, which is what Bonfire was. So as you're shoving those logs down into the gaps below, it's increasing the pressure as you push it out and away. 
if you don't have something on the outside of that cylinder to keep it from pushing, giving into that outward stress, eventually it's going to fail. And since they didn't have the straps in place, the combination of the already immense pressure from this giant thing that's held together by bailing wire and then shoving more logs down onto it and getting up to the fourth tier where you have all of this weight pushing down on a essentially uncontained cylinder, you're going to eventually have a failure. And it was noted that the 1999 logs tended to be significantly more bent than any of the logs that they'd had previously in previous years. So there was significantly more logs that had to be wedged down into lower tiers in order to keep them in place, which dramatically increased the hoop stress on the first and second tiers. Eventually, the hoop stress overcame the hoop strength, which is hoop stress is the amount of pressure being pushed out. Hoop strength is the amount of strength of whatever's holding the hoop in place, the, the pressure in place. So when the stress is greater than the strength, then it falls apart. Eventually, hoop stress overcame hoop strength, and you had a failure, and the bonfire collapsed. But that's not the only issues we had here. The next two issues go hand in hand with each other, and technically the two issues above as well. You see, the place they built this bonfire was slightly sloping to the southeast. Now, it's very slight, like a foot over the entire distance, but still enough to cause a problem. Because obviously, if you're leaning one direction, it's going to increase the stress on the structure in that one direction. So it's leaning to the southeast, it's at an angle to the southeast, it's going to increase the pressure of the logs pushing that direction. So, once that hoop stress was overcome, it was all going to follow that direction because that's where the greatest amount of stress and the least amount of strength was. And then, to add another issue to that, they built the second level all the way out until about a foot away from the edge on that southeast portion, the direction the slope was going. So, the farther out you build the second, third, and fourth layers, the more stress you put on the bottom layer, obviously because there's more weight. So if you have your first layer and it's 45 feet wide, you have your second layer and it goes all the way out to 44 feet on one edge, but it only goes like 30 feet on the other edge, you're going to have significantly more pressure on that 44 foot side. So if you're building it out to 44 feet on the southeast side, you're going to have significantly more pressure in that one area which just so happened to be the downslope area and also the area the whole bonfire fell. So we have a combination of issues here. We have a downslope, which is causing extra pressure on the bonfire. We have it built all the way out to just about a foot from the edge on the second tier, which is increasing the stress on the bottom. We have no actual cables wrapped around the base of this thing to help hold it into place. And then we also have a ton of extra weight and pressure added by shoving the logs down inside of the gaps in the bottom, forcing more pressure out, and eventually causing the whole thing to collapse. So the first loud snap that most of the witnesses to the bonfire heard was likely the center pole snapping towards the southeast, and then it all came down in just a couple seconds. There are numerous eyewitness reports just absolutely confused as to how the entire structure came down so quickly. 
It came down in just a blink of an eye. In the aftermath of the disaster, Texas A&M officially did away with the bonfire, at least on campus, because college students cannot be stopped, and an unofficial bonfire is still held off campus. It's called student bonfire. Texas A&M would end up spending about $100,000 sending students and faculty via private jet to attend funerals of those who died. The parents of those killed and injured in the disaster would sue Texas A&M, claiming that they had knowledge that the bonfire was unsafe and the school had taken out insurance policies in years prior relating to the actual bonfire. Texas A&M claims that the accidental death and dismemberment policy and liability policy in place for bonfire were not actually purchased by the school, but a committee working with those building the bonfire not associated with the school. The suit also claimed that officials at A&M purposely avoided overseeing the project because they knew it was dangerous, which I think is pretty obvious, but all lawsuits would eventually be dismissed and Texas A&M would not hold any blame for the collapse. The last lawsuit was settled in 2008, with Texas A&M agreeing to pay $2 million to the victims and promising engineering oversight if the bonfire returned to campus, which it never has and probably never will. Now, Texas A&M built a memorial on the site of the collapse. Entering the area follows the history of bonfire throughout the 90 years it burnt until you reach the Spirit Ring. Now, the Spirit Ring is surrounded by 27 slabs of granite with blank bronze markers. Those 27 slabs are in memory of each injured Aggie in the collapse, and they are blank because it is in memory of all Aggies that had been injured during the building of Bonfire over the previous 90 years. Set inside those slabs of granite are 12 bronze portals with the names, photos, and a written memorial of the following Aggies who died in the collapse. Miranda Adams, Christopher Breen, Michael Ebanks, Jeremy Frampton, Jamie Hand, Christopher Hurd, Timothy Curley Jr., Lucas Kimmel, Brian McLean, Chad Powell, Jerry Self, and Nathan West. Each of the portals are lined up from the center of the memorial in line with the hometown of the respective Aggie who is memorialized on that portal. In the absolute center of the memorial is a black granite marker in the exact spot of the center pole engraved with the exact time and date of the collapse, 2.42 a.m., November 18, 1999. Oh, and before we go, just to cover all of our bases, that game between Texas and Texas A&M that was scheduled to be played on November 26, 1999, was played. And the final score was 20-16. Texas A&M upset the Texas Longhorns. Before the game started, a flyover was done by F-16 fighter jets in the missing man formation, all piloted by former Texas A&M students. At halftime, the University of Texas band played Amazing Grace and Taps. Now, Texas A&M fans generally sit and don't pay attention when the opposing band is on the field. But for this one, they stood the entire time and then gave the Texas band a standing ovation as they walked off the field. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History, History Filled Without the Vowels, or on TikTok, Disastrous History. Um, I also have a Patreon. It is disastrous history. Um, I am working hard to bring you guys the content that will be available on there. Um, I have some stuff that I have planned, and I hope to make it worthwhile for all of you. 
I appreciate you all so much for listening to this podcast and supporting it over the last year and a half. I love all of my listeners so much. I don't know what I would be without you guys. So thank you, thank you, thank you so very much. And as always, remember to stay safe and check your smoke detector batteries.